Welcome to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, December 2nd, 2023, where we separate the spin from the facts. I'm Scott Wallace. And I'm Eric Steiner with a look at today's top stories. George Santos is expelled from Congress. The first female Supreme Court Justice, Sandra Day O'Connor, dies at 93. A federal appeals court rules that Trump can be sued for January 6th. Fighting in Gaza resumes after a week-long truce expires. Ukraine's Zelensky says the war has reached a new phase. A senior Paraguayan official is sacked after signing a deal with a non-existent country. The UK joins an effort to patrol vulnerable undersea cables. Russia extends the detention of a US journalist. A judge blocks Montana's TikTok ban. And hundreds of nations commit to a climate damage fund at the COP28 climate summit. The U.S. House votes to expel George Santos from Congress. Here are the facts as agreed upon by The Hill, Fox News, NPR Online News, Wall Street Journal, and The Guardian. For just the sixth time in the legislative chamber's history, the U.S. House of Representatives on Friday voted to expel Representative George Santos, Republican of New York, from Congress by a vote of 311 to 114 to 2, including 105 Republicans voting in favor. The vote followed a House Ethics Committee report claiming he, quote, blatantly stole from his campaign and deceived donors into providing what they thought were contributions to his campaign, but were payments for his personal benefit. Santos has also been indicted on 23 accounts related to wire fraud, identity theft, falsification of records, and credit card fraud, among others, including accusations that he used campaign funds to buy luxury goods and treatments like Botox. The last congressman to be ousted was Representative Jim Trafficant, Democrat of Ohio, in 2002, though Trafficant had already been convicted of 10 felony accounts before his expulsion. Santos left the Capitol building shortly after the vote and without saying much to reporters. However, at a press conference yesterday, he did say, quote, this doesn't mean it is goodbye forever. The departure of the freshman congressman from Long Island, New York, has now shrunk the GOP's already slim majority in the House. The saga began shortly after Santos was elected in 2022 with a New York Times report alleging he lied about his work history, educational achievements, and family background, followed by indictments by federal prosecutors in New York. However, the now ex-congressman asked on the House floor, quote, are we to now assume that one is no longer innocent until proven guilty, and they are in fact guilty until proven innocent? Although more than 100 Republicans voted to expel Santos, a majority did not including three New York Republicans, Claudia Tenney, Elise Stefanik, and Santos himself, as well as the entire House GOP leadership. Now that he's gone, however, New York will have 90 days to hold a special election. In the meantime, Governor Kathy Hochul will choose a temporary replacement. All right, this crazy story has some politically divisive narratives. Eric, let's start with the Democratic narrative from the New York Times. No one represents, nor is enthralled by, Donald Trump more than George Santos. Santos entered politics not to help the country and serve his constituents, but rather to follow in his MAGA leader's footsteps by using his office to obtain fame and fortune. Though fellow radical Marjorie Taylor Greene voted to keep him in, thankfully he was unable to amass the same support as his MAGA idol. We follow that with a Republican narrative coming from the Wall Street Journal. While the House GOP could certainly have waited until Santos was convicted in a court of law before expelling the congressman, the Republican from New York was already headed toward a quick and severely stained end to his political career. He was an embarrassment to both his party and the institution and is likely to face even more consequences as his legal troubles continue. 
the GOP now focuses on replacing Santos with a reputable replacement. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus. They predict a 75% chance that the GOP will control the Senate after the 2024 election. Uh, what blows me away about this is the audacity. Like, to think that you could become a notable politician and then not have people look into your past is, I don't know, I think, think that might be an antiquated notion at this point with everything online. It is. It, it's antiquated. But you know what? It, the bottom line is, Scott, it didn't hurt you. Good point. You know? I got my foot in the door. And, and so what if I'm not the son of a generation of industrialists and uh, <laughs> whatever, you know, what all the great charity organizations <laughs> right. I've done? Basically, anything I've ever claimed on this show should be called into serious <laughs> question. That's my advice to you. Let me get the list out. And sad news as Sandra Day O'Connor, the first female Supreme Court justice, dies at the age of 93. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by NBC News, Fox News, The New York Times, and The Wall Street Journal. Sandra Day O'Connor, the first woman appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court, has died in Phoenix after having suffered complications of advanced dementia and a respiratory illness. She retired from the court in 2006 after serving for nearly 25 years. O'Connor's tenure on the court was bipartisan as she voted with conservatives on issues such as approving taxpayer-funded vouchers for students at religious schools and ending the 2000 recount in Florida between George W. Bush and Al Gore. She also voted with the liberals on abortion rights and affirmative action in college admissions. According to one of her former law clerks, Andrew McBride, O'Connor's oral arguments were actually being courted by the other justices adding she was often the first justice to pose a question in important court arguments, thereby quickly setting the tone. O'Connor, a judge on a mid-level appeals court in Arizona before her appointment to the Supreme Court, was 51 years old when then-President Ronald Reagan appointed her, fulfilling his promise to appoint the first female justice. Though she didn't proclaim herself as liberal, she expressed concern that some of her most notable decisions were dismantled after the more conservative Samuel Alito Jr. replaced her. O'Connor served on many political boards and worked in Republican politics at the precinct level before she became an assistant state attorney general in 1965. She then served time in the state Senate, sat on the Maricopa County Superior Court, and in 1979 was appointed to the state appeals court. She is survived by her three sons, six grandchildren, and her brother, Alan. Scott, thank you for those facts. The first spin is a right narrative, and it's coming from National Review. O'Connor was a trailblazer, but more importantly, she wasn't devoted to one political worldview or translation of historical text. She adhered to an approach of moderation, justice, and fairness from the bench, sometimes to the ire of both conservatives and liberals. Her ability to rule while having her finger on the pulse of public sentiment made her the perfect justice to serve as a swing vote for more than two decades. And Slate Magazine brings us the left narrative. O'Connor should be commended for her independence. However, one of the times she sided with her conservative colleagues led to the election of the Republican Bush as a president. Unfortunately, when she decided to step down, Bush was still in office and he nominated Alito, who has since formed a conservative supermajority on the court that has dismantled many of the things O'Connor felt strongest about and has brought a disappointing end to her legacy. The nerds from the Metaculous Prediction community say there's a 39% chance that the Supreme Court will change its membership size before 2050. You know, they didn't mention anything about her beauty school history and, you know, the fact that she dropped out and that whole debacle. Oh, wait a minute. That was Sandra D. I'm sorry. Never mind. (laughs) I mean, if they had a nickel for every time they they were crossed up. According to an appeals court, Donald Trump can be sued for January 6th. 
Here are the facts as agreed upon by CNBC, Forbes, Fox News, The Hill, and CNN. A federal appeals court panel on Friday rejected former President Donald Trump's request to have presidential immunity in civil lawsuits regarding the January 6, 2021 protests at the U.S. Capitol. The decision means that Trump can face civil lawsuits over allegations he incited a riot after the 2020 election. The three-judge panel from the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals voted unanimously to affirm a lower court ruling that said Trump couldn't have civil cases related to January 6th thrown out on the grounds of presidential immunity. The appellate court's chief judge, Sri Srinivasan, said that the Capitol Police officers and Democratic members of Congress can sue Trump for civil damages related to, quote, harms they allege they suffered arising from the riot. Trump's team argues that Trump is protected from prosecution since he was president when he delivered remarks in the lead-up to January 6th. However, the panel said that Trump was acting as a candidate and not carrying out his presidential duties when speaking about the election. The decision doesn't touch on the merits of cases against Trump, but only whether or not the former president can be sued for his actions related to January 6th. Trump faces two lawsuits from Democratic House members and one from Capitol Police officers. The decision is consequential regarding what is considered protected presidential speech and what a president may be liable for. Judge Greg Katsis wrote in his concurring opinion that the decision is, quote, flexible enough to accommodate rare cases, even when speech made during a campaign event may be official. We've got an anti-Trump narrative from NPR Online News. Donald Trump cannot hide behind some flawed argument of presidential immunity when it comes to his incitement of the January 6th, 2021 insurrection. Thankfully, the court recognized that he wasn't acting out his presidential duties when he tried to overturn the results of the 2020 presidential election. Trump can and must be held accountable for his attempt to undermine American democracy. And this ruling is a positive step toward achieving this. The pro-Trump narrative comes from Daily Caller. The political persecution of Donald Trump continues, and it's now uprooting fundamental principles of American law. The D.C. appellate court's decision to remove his presidential immunity opens up a can of worms that could forever alter what politicians are and are not liable for when it comes to legal proceedings. Of course, this will likely be a one-way street against Republicans, but it's interesting to see some fair-minded liberals call out the consequences of this legal assault. And another nerd narrative from Metaculus, they predict a 55% chance that Donald Trump will be jailed or incarcerated before the year 2030. And the fighting resumes in Gaza after the truce expires. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Al Jazeera, Al Arabia, Guardian, BBC News and NDTV. After a week-long truce between Israel and Hamas ended Friday morning, hostilities between the two began again, with Israel striking Gaza and Hamas launching rockets into Israel. Israel also dropped more leaflets over southern Gaza, calling for civilians to evacuate. Over 100 have already been reported killed from bombing on Friday per the Gaza Health Ministry, with strikes taking place across the entire Strip. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu claimed that Hamas broke the truce and did not release all women captives as agreed. Nonetheless, negotiations mediated by Egypt and Qatar have continued. As of Friday evening, the Israeli military claimed that it had hit over 200 targets in Gaza. Israel released an online map of Gaza broken into hundreds of numbered areas to inform civilians which areas it will target. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken reportedly notified Netanyahu during a meeting between the two on Thursday that the U.S. is preparing to announce a series of visa bans against Israeli settlers involved in attacks on Palestinians in the West Bank. 
The ban could come into effect as early as the next few weeks. Hostilities on the Lebanese border also began again on Friday, and Lebanon's Hezbollah claimed responsibility for an attack on Israeli towns near the border. In response, Israel shelled South Lebanon, killing two. Gaza's health ministry reports that the conflict has left almost 15,000 people, the majority of whom were women and children, in the Gaza Strip dead, while the official Israeli death toll stands at 1,200 people. Thank you, Scott. The Jerusalem Post gives us our first spin. It's a pro-Israel narrative. Though, of course, Israelis are glad to see some of the hostages now safe and sound back in Israel, the country must not allow Hamas to regroup. Hamas seized upon the temporary pause to mark Israeli positions and prepare itself for continued attacks on Israeli forces in Gaza. Indeed, the pace at which Israeli forces maneuvered in Gaza threw Hamas's military leadership off kilter, and Israel will have to work intelligently in its campaign of fully eliminating the terrorist group so it can never launch an attack like October 7th again. And the pro-Palestine narrative comes from Middle East Eye. Israel continues to demonstrate that its war is not against Hamas, but against the Palestinian people as a whole. Nowhere in Gaza is safe, and Israel has effectively rendered the north of the Strip unlivable. Unfortunately, the temporary ceasefire only gave civilians a few days of relative rest, and now Israel has returned to killing Palestinians at an unprecedented rate. The U.S., Israel's biggest ally, must exert more pressure to end the war. And the nerds of Metaculus say there's a 50% chance that Israel will announce that it will release at least 195 Palestinian prisoners or detainees by 2024. Zelensky says the war is in a new phase and Ukraine is not backing down. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Associated Press, the Institute for the Study of War, and Ukraine's Kapravda. In an exclusive interview with the Associated Press, published Friday, Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky gave a mixed account of Ukraine's battlefield situation, stating that its much-anticipated counteroffensive failed to produce the desired results because of enduring shortages of weapons and ground forces. However, he declared that the war is in a new phase and that despite the setbacks, Ukraine is not backing down. Quote, we have a new phase of war, and that is a fact, Zelensky said. Winter as a whole is a new phase of war. Asked whether he was satisfied with the results of Ukraine's counteroffensive, he said, We are fighting with the second best army in the world. I am satisfied. However, he added, We are losing people. I am not satisfied. We didn't get all the weapons we wanted. I can't be satisfied, but I also can't complain too much. Later in the interview, Zelensky added, We wanted faster results. From that perspective, unfortunately, we did not achieve the desired results. And this is a fact. He said Ukraine didn't receive all the weapons it needed from allies and that the size of his country's military prevented a rapid advancement. However, according to the latest analysis from the Institute for the Study of War, or ISW, a U.S. military-affiliated think tank that tracks battlefield progress in the war, Ukraine's frontline situation continues to deteriorate with Russian forces reportedly making a number of advances in the eastern Donetsk region. Near Bakhmut, a city captured by Russia earlier in the year, ISW said, quote, Russian forces reportedly made multiple advances near Bakhmut on November 30th. Russian forces also reportedly advanced near the Donetsk city of Advivka, the center of a renewed Russian offensive push since October. ISW said that clashes with Ukrainian troops were taking place in industrial zones on the outskirts of the city. ISW reported an additional Russian advance in western Donetsk in territory near the border with Zaporizhia. Meanwhile, Ukraine's air force on Friday said that Russia launched renewed attacks on Ukraine overnight, firing two cruise-guided missiles and deploying 25 unmanned drones. An Air Force spokesperson said that due to air defenses, a missile and 18 drones were shot down and destroyed. There were no reports of civilian casualties. 
Thanks, Eric, for that update on this conflict. We have a pro-Ukraine narrative from the Associated Press. Despite the setbacks and the coming winter weather, Ukraine has no choice but to continue defending against Russian aggression and to fight for what's theirs. While world attention has understandably shifted to the tragedy in the Middle East, the world mustn't forget that a war is also happening in Ukraine. The Russian Ministry of Foreign Affairs has a pro-Russian narrative. After the Cold War, there was a historic opportunity to continue down the path of treaties and disarmament, based on the principles of shared security concerns. Instead, however, the U.S. chose a path of seeking to weaponize Ukraine in an effort to weaken Russia. Despite all that's happened to Ukraine, the West is continuing this disastrous policy. And a nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 1% chance that a bilateral ceasefire or peace agreement in the Russo-Ukraine conflict will come before the start of 2024. A senior official in Paraguay is sacked after striking a deal with a non-existent country. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by DW, The Guardian, The Associated Press, The Telegraph, Merco Press, and The Wire. Arnaldo Chamorro, the chief of staff at Paraguay's Agriculture Ministry, was replaced on Wednesday after admitting to signing a memorandum of understanding with purported representatives from a non-existent Hindu island nation located in South America. He revealed in a radio interview on Thursday that self-proclaimed officials of the so-called United States of Calasa had met with him and Agriculture Minister Carlos Jimenez, offering to help Paraguay with several issues, including irrigation. According to a copy of the agreement posted online, the government of Paraguay had expressed its willingness to actively seek the establishment of diplomatic relations with Calasa and support its admission in international organizations, including the United Nations. The municipalities of Maria Antonia and Carpai also signed deals with Kailasa. Self-described as the revival of the ancient enlightened Hindu civilizational nation, Kailasa has never been a sovereign nation, though its leader, Swami Nityananda, a guru who has been on the run from rape and assault charges in India since 2019, has stated that he has established his cosmic republic on a private island off the Ecuadorian coast. Quito has long denied such claims. This international scandal, which sparked lots of social media mockery, was likened to a meeting between former Paraguayan President Mario Abdo Benitez with a fake CEO of a Lamborghini car factory. However, this isn't the first time that authorities have been convinced that Kailasa was a real country. The American city of Newark, New Jersey, had signed a sister city agreement with the fictional nation, and two Kailasa representatives attended an event in Geneva organized by a UN committee in February. Thank you, Scott. Ticker TV News has narrative A for this story. The embarrassing nature of Chamorro's lack of due diligence concerning Kailasa highlights a plethora of underlying security problems that undermine Paraguay's politics. The event has led to widespread ridicule, underpinning the necessity for thorough background checks when dealing with foreign entities. Paraguay must learn its lesson and ensure it does due diligence on its governance dealings. Narrative B comes from Kailasa.org. Kailasa has continued to expand its diplomatic network across the world based on good intentions. Examples of success in Africa and South Asia highlight the entity's future potential. International actors who share similar values, such as religious freedom, the eradication of hunger, and holistic health and education continue to recognize Kailasa for its true commitment to a positive future, no matter how its sovereignty is classified by others. The United Kingdom joins an allied effort to protect undersea cables. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Reuters, UK Defense Journal, Express UK, Business Insider, and BBC News. 
Britain will send six Royal Navy warships, a Royal Fleet Auxiliary Ship, and a Royal Air Force Maritime Patrol aircraft to take part next month in Joint Expeditionary Force, or JEF, patrols of the area, from the English Channel to the Baltic Sea, with vulnerable undersea infrastructure. The decision comes after defense ministers from all JEF nations, Denmark, Estonia, Finland, Iceland, Latvia, Lithuania, and the Netherlands, Norway, Sweden, and the UK, unanimously agreed to activate the JEF response option protocol to mobilize military assets for the first time. British Defense Secretary Grant Shapps has argued that the deployment will, quote, defend our shared critical infrastructure against potential threats in the North Atlantic and North Sea and send a powerful message of deterrence that any potential threat will be met with force. NATO has also reportedly focused on defending critical seabed infrastructure, especially after a gas pipeline and two telecommunications cables running between Estonia and Finland were damaged on October 8th, raising fears that Russia could target undersea infrastructure to put pressure on the West. Similar incidents have been reported around northern Europe in recent years, such as a two-and-a-half-mile-long section of data cable disappearing from waters north of Norway in 2021 and the alleged Ukrainian sabotage of the Nord Stream gas pipelines between Germany and Russia last year. Meanwhile, Shaps has also revealed that the HMS Diamond, a Type 45 destroyer, is en route to join the frigate HMS Lancaster in the Gulf to boost deterrence against Iran and its proxies amid mounting tensions in the Middle East. Thanks for that update, Eric. The Establishment Critical Narrative is brought to us by RT. It's hypocritical of the West to point fingers at Russia over the Baltic connector when the explosions that blew up the Nord Stream pipeline remain unsolved. There's a high risk that the impetus behind these patrols will evolve into the targeted closure of the Baltic Sea to Russian shipping. Any Western actors potentially involved in the Nord Stream sabotage should also face sanctions. Follow that with a pro-establishment narrative coming from Financial Times. While the West and its security allies are tirelessly working to prevent conflict, deter enemies, and protect critical undersea infrastructure, China and Russia have intensified their hostile activities in the high north and around the Baltic Sea. As northern waters become increasingly contested and dangerous, Western powers are seeking to ensure they remain free and navigable. In a nerd narrative from Metaculus, they say there's a 7% chance that there will be a war between Russia and one or more NATO countries, but not the U.S. by the year 2035. Eric, I read about these undersea you know, internet infrastructure cables a uh, number of years ago, and, and one of the big reasons people aren't worried about them being, uh, weren't worried in the past about them being damaged is that the terrorist internet wouldn't work either. You know, like, like they don't also don't want their internet to go out. Like no one wants to have to use dial up. Are you saying that that ship has sailed, Scott? Is that kind of what you're telling it's, me? That frigate has sailed. <laughs> a Russian court extends the detention of journalist Alshu Kermasheva. Here are the facts as agreed upon by Daily Mail, Reuters, Al Jazeera, and U.S. News & World Report. Russian-American journalist Alsu Kermasheva had her pre-trial detention extended until February. Kermasheva is an editor for the U.S. government-funded Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, or RFERL's Tatar Bashkir service, and is accused of not registering as a foreign agent and collecting Russian military information. A court in the city of Kazan extended her detention until February 5th without setting a trial date. RFERL Acting President Jeremy Gedmin released a statement confirming the situation and criticizing Kermasheva's detention as unjust and politically motivated. Kermasheva was detained in Kazan on October 18th after she had been in Russia since May 20th for a family emergency. She is a dual citizen who holds Russian and U.S. passports, which were confiscated in June after she was briefly detained. 
Her October detention came as she awaited the return of her passports. Russia designates RFERL as a foreign agent since it is funded by foreign governments for political reasons. Kermasheva resides in Prague, Czech Republic, and was required to disclose that she was a foreign agent when she arrived in Russia. She is accused of collecting information on Russia's military activities to transmit to foreign sources. Kermasheva faces five years in prison for not registering as a foreign agent. She was also fined 10,000 rubles, or 103 U.S. dollars, on October 11th for not registering her U.S. passport with Russian authorities. She is the second U.S. journalist Russia has detained since its war in Ukraine started. Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich was arrested on espionage charges in March, which could amount to 20 years in prison. Thank you for the facts, Scott. Our first spin is an anti-Russian narrative coming from Committee to Protect Journalists. Russia continues to show a complete lack of regard for basic human rights as it continues to hold Alsu Kermasheva as a political hostage. She did absolutely nothing wrong, but is being abused for simply existing as an independent journalist in an authoritarian country. Since its invasion of Ukraine, Russia has only dialed up its attack on free speech, and this gross abuse of power must be condemned and stopped. Kermasheva must be released immediately. We've got a pro-Russian narrative from RT. Western propaganda machines push utter falsehoods about Russia with no interest in telling the truth. The U.S. claims that Russia is engaged in the persecution of American journalists when the fact is that Russia is simply implementing its national laws that require foreign agents to identify themselves. Russian law is crystal clear. RFERL is a foreign-funded media outlet that is political in nature, and Alsu Kermasheva is a political actor who is gathering information on the Russian military. The Metaculous Prediction community has a nerd narrative saying there's a 10% chance that a post-Putin Russia will substantially democratize within five years. A judge blocks Montana's TikTok ban. Here are the facts as agreed upon by BBC News, The Guardian, Forbes, Independent, The Hill, and Reuters. District Judge Donald Malloy blocked Montana's ban on TikTok, scheduled to take effect on January 1st, on Thursday noting it violated users' free speech rights in the Constitution in more ways than one, he says. The ban oversteps state power, Judge Malloy ruled. In May, TikTok sued Montana, arguing that the state's legislation prohibiting the app violated the company and users' constitutional rights. According to the preliminary injunction, the ban on the ByteDance-owned app was intended to target, quote, China's ostensible role in TikTok rather than protect its users. GOP-governed Montana has cited the potential for TikTok to share user data with the PRC, which can legally marshal firms to gather intelligence when it became the first U.S. state to ban the app. The judge, however, suggested Montana could provide public service warnings about the possibility of ByteDance collecting data because users are required to agree to TikTok's policies to use the app. Meanwhile, the Montana Attorney General's office has said that Judge Malloy's ruling was only preliminary and that it would make, quote, the complete legal argument to defend the ban. Thanks, Eric, for that update. We have a anti-China narrative from The Hill. The Department of Justice is probing ByteDance's use of TikTok data to spy on U.S. journalists. Montana's ban says the app can operate unfettered if it severs its connection with ByteDance. Given how murky Chinese companies are, such a ban is necessary to keep Americans safe from a prying China. Hopefully, more U.S. states will follow Montana's path. Following that up with a pro-China narrative coming from Xinhua. Leaders on both sides of the aisle are leading to a cynical assault against TikTok to foment anti-China sentiment, with there being not one shred of evidence that the app is used for espionage purposes by China. 
TikTok collects no more data than American tech platforms, but is under much more scrutiny. The TikTok crusade is bordering on hysteria as U.S. leaders ignore the grave privacy concerns posed by Western social media platforms. And another nerd narrative from Metaculus, there's a 1% chance that the U.S. will ban TikTok before the year 2024. I was watching TikTok right before we uh, went live here, Eric. It was a, uh, a guy from Scott, New Zealand hey, making... Scott. Scott, we all already know. I mean, China's already posted everything <laughs> oh, they heard, did. They already yeah. shared with you yeah, that well, I was watching Mac, New Zealand mac and cheese videos. That's exactly, true. Yeah, it's already exactly. out there. Yeah. And we, and we see that you paused it six times. What, what, what is going on there, Scott? You I mean, it was really your, good. Believe me. Oh. That, that, that bechamel sauce was really <laughs> looking good. Our final story comes from COP28, where a loss and damage fund is approved. Here are the facts, as agreed upon by Reuters, Al Jazeera, The Washington Post, BBC News, The New York Times, and The Economic Times. Nearly 200 countries on Thursday approved the loss and damage fund on the first day of the UN's two-week annual climate summit known as COP28 in Dubai. More than $400 million was immediately committed to the fund, with the EU, the UK, the US, and host UAE, all pledging millions of dollars. The Climate Disaster Fund is reportedly being set up to help vulnerable nations cope with the impacts of climate change, such as drought, floods, wildfires, and storms. The long-sought fund will initially be held at the World Bank, despite objections from several developing nations, as they reportedly find that wealthy countries have a dominating effect on the organization. While dozens of heads of state are attending the largest-ever climate gathering, U.S. President Joe Biden and his Chinese counterpart, Xi Jinping, leaders of the world's two biggest polluters, have skipped the event. COP28 comes as the UN declared that 2023 is on track to become the hottest year on record, warning that the world could face between 2.5 degrees Celsius and 2.9 degrees Celsius of warming above the pre-industrial era by the year 2100. Thank you, Scott. The round of spins begins with Narrative A, coming from Nature. The Loss and Damage Fund is a significant milestone in combating the climate crisis. It shows that the entire international community is ready to act with ambition on a global threat. Even though industrialized nations aren't obliged to compensate developing countries least prepared to deal with climate-linked weather disasters, they have come together to ensure everyone is equipped with adequate funds and technology to help with what's coming. Narrative B comes from Voice of America. It's too early to celebrate the fund's approval as certain issues still need to be solved, including how the fund will be financed in the future. Moreover, the fund's long-term sustainability and COP28's climate mitigation plans remain questionable if fossil fuel companies are not part of the solution to climate challenges or world leaders refrain from completely phasing out fossil fuels. Lastly, the fund recognizes the world has failed to prevent climate change from happening. Our final nerd narrative coming from Metaculous Prediction Community says there's a 50% chance that the average global temperature in the year 2100 will be 2.47 degrees Celsius higher than the average global temperature in the year 1880. Thanks for listening to the Verity Podcast for Saturday, December 2nd, 2023. Each day we use machine learning to read about 5,000 articles from about 100 newspapers and figure out which ones are about the same stories. For each major story, our editorial team then extracts both the key facts that all articles agree on and the key narratives where the articles differ. Find out more at Verity.news and download the Verity app on the Apple App Store or Google Play. For Scott Wallace, I'm Eric Steiner inviting you to join us next time on the Verity Podcast. 